Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going very well, Andrew. How's it going to you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else as well. If this is the first time you are tuning in with us, first, I have to ask you, what took you so long? Second, I have to tell you, make sure you hit that subscribe button. Check out all the content we put out on the internet. Jeff writes about stocks at focuscompounding.com. We have a free content section. I was just telling Jeff that I spent about three days last week, put my headphones on basically all day long, just copying and pasting all of Jeff's old articles going all the way back to December of 2005. Do you remember what your first blog post ever was? Uh, no, I don't remember my first ever. On American Eagle. On American Eagle. I was going to say, American I don't know if that was the first one, but I thought American Eagle was one of the first ones. Yep. Yeah, on American mm -hmm. Eagle. So you could get this all for free on the free content section of our website. Don't even need to sign up. Um, so go to Focus Compound and do that and hit the subscribe button wherever you are watching or listening yeah, to the YouTube podcast. Subscribe to the podcast. Look at that. That's how you could support tell it. Tell a friend. Tell a friend. <laughs> Tell a friend. So in today's podcast, we're going to be talking a little bit about um, the recent volatility in the markets. So last week, we did a podcast on the current market environment, talked a little bit about the volatility, um, but about like the 10-year yield, where we currently are, all sort of things like that. And, you know, sort of the consensus by a lot of people uh, that respond to that podcast was they want to hear about like, you know, how to manage uh, volatility on the investment side. Okay. So news flow, right, pretty much... I mean, we'll say COVID aside, news flow, I guess, with like stocks and businesses and stuff um, over the past year has been pretty good. Somebody actually said, right. in quote, gnarly. Um, so, you know, they wanted to just talk about, you know, managing volatility mentally okay. and as well as on the investment side, um, you know, selling winners, how to think about portfolio turnover and all sort of things like that. Okay. Um, so our stance on portfolio turnover is less is more. But what's interesting is right. if you think That's about, and we've talked a lot about, you know, Peter Lynch, early Buffett, yeah. um, all, you know, things that come from that era, people that come from that era, they really had a lot of portfolio turnover. And I had a 100% portfolio turnover for a quarter. Uh, if you annualize it, I probably had 400% portfolio turnover or something in the first quarter of 2000. Or, yeah, about the first quarter of 2009. So... If was you, that because like value came back into play? Better ideas. I have nothing against selling one thing to buy something that's better. Um, I'm not a big believer on selling something because it's been a winner or something like that. Now we don't invest in things that really test that. Charlie Munger talked about that recently, where he said, you know, I haven't had many BYD type things that actually challenge that idea that it so quickly becomes such a different valuation. So usually his method of just holding on to things that are working out for him. Is okay. Same with us. We don't have the challenge that some people might usually of having a you buy something at P of ten and it goes to a hundred. Um, so putting those aside, uh, I would like to to sell things because I have a new idea to buy, not sell thing to uh, lock in a gain, those sort of thing to take a profit. That's the sort of thing that's the portfolio term we don't do. But the early Buffett, the early Lynch, um, I think a lot of that is finding even better ideas. You have to remember when that was though. Uh, some of the early Lynch stuff was, I think, the cheapest, maybe the cheapest stocks ever were. It's possible some stocks were cheaper in the Depression, but probably not. Um, you know, so uh, 1974 or so is probably the cheapest that stocks ever were. And they, in many ways, stayed that cheap for about eight years. Some got better value. Stocks got um, 
a little pricier over time and the more gross stocks didn't recover as quickly. So like when it was 2009 and you're mm-hmm. making these investments and you flip the portfolio yeah. massively. So you're getting a lot of that multiple re-rating by the market then. Yeah, I sold some Berkshire Hathaway at that time. I It's the only time I've owned Berkshire Hathaway. I thought that like... Um, it was selling for not a very high price above the value of its stock portfolio. And the stock portfolio was very reasonably priced at that time. If you look back at what it was, like American Express was a big component of it, things like that. And they didn't look expensive as stocks. So, um, but I sold it uh, so that I could buy even more of something else that was the dropping. And uh, I think that in that case, I sold it to buy more IMS Health, um, which seemed even cheaper to me. And it, it was buying back its own stock too. Um, so there, there are cases like that. Like I thought that was a much better, uh, bargain than Berkshire was. So I had to sell something. I thought Berkshire was fine, but I said, you have to sell something to find something that's even cheaper, uh, even better. And do you have like a limit, right? Because as Monisha says, some, you have to make sure that the mistress is hotter than the wife. And a lot of times the mistress isn't hotter than the wife. What was happening in 2009, um, in the first few months is that, companies that I knew well, businesses I knew well, um, industries, things that were wide mode and you never thought you were going to get the opportunity to buy them were suddenly becoming very cheap. So, uh, and when I say very cheap, I mean things like 10 times free cash flow. Um, and in some cases, there are a few companies 10 times free cash flow and they were basically using everything they had to buy back their stock. Now, maybe they were going to pause the buyback in the middle of uh, a huge market crash or maybe they weren't. Some companies do. Uh, but yeah, it was a lot of companies that I knew fairly well and knew to have really good business models, right? Mm-hmm. Um, not a lot of cyclical things and stuff like that. Now, if I had bought all net nets at that moment, over the next two years, I would have done better in those than in high quality companies. Because probably a basket of net nets was up, I would guess, 150% within 12 months of the bottom. Um, That's true, by the way, last year with COVID. If we had sold everything we owned and bought the net nets I knew of that I would have owned, like five my five favorite net nets, let's say, from a year ago, that would be ahead of everything right now. It would even probably be in line with or ahead of some tech stocks. Very interesting. You know, when the markets were selling off a little bit last week, if I were to just scroll through Twitter, mm-hmm. I would have thought that the world was ending. Right. And it's only like the market was off a couple percent or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. So that to me says people own a ton of growth. Or, you know, maybe they're right. using a lot of, of margin or, you know, stuff like that. Um, so I don't know. It's just, it's interesting. You know, a lot of people are probably sitting on a lot of unrealized gains. And how do you get past that mental barrier to, you know, either shuffle the deck up more, realize uh, those gains and invest it in maybe something else? Does it really depend on the type of investor that you are? Um, yeah, I think it depends on the type of investor. When you were saying that to me, when you get that reaction from people, it tends to be that they're not very... Um, uh, firm holders of the stock. So that reaction that things went down a little bit and being concerned about it tends to be people who eventually will sell the stock. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a sign usually that they're going to dump the stock once it drops by a certain amount. See, people who are fairly firm holders of a stock, you don't get that same reaction to it. So that's what happens with stocks like some of the ones you're talking about. They're a little more speculative. The problem is that there's no... Um, usually in stocks like that, there's no strong base of people who will hold the stock through um, a major decline or who will buy more or something. So what can happen is it can drop quite a lot because it would have to drop by a huge amount to become sort of attractive to value investors and things like that. Mm-hmm. So generally when you see that where people are concerned about a small percentage decline, it's because they think that it means something too. 
right? So it's like um, it's sending a signal. Yeah. And because somewhere in their mind, they've always thought, I have to get out before other people get out. Whereas if you're in a stock that you're not that concerned about getting out of it, most people you talk to are probably not going to be concerned if Berkshire's down 5% in a day. Mm -hmm. But they might be concerned about some other things they own. Yeah. Yeah. So a question that somebody asked, so now what I'm going to start to do is I want to start working in um, uh, questions or tweets that people send to the topic. Okay. Somebody said the relationship between treasury yields and valuation of equities. Is it correct to say that if yields go up, the value of equities should go down because at a higher discount rate, the NPV of the cash flows is smaller? What is wrong with this widely touted statement? No, that's true. It's true. Uh, but there's a difference between theoretically correct and practical that you can actually apply this. So we can do the math and it's disturbing how big uh, the difference will be. And that's why people need to be careful about it. Um, if you do it that way, for instance, if you had, uh, if you had negative type yields, um, in a, in an economy for a fairly long period of time, uh, fairly long out, like a 10 year bond or something was negative. Uh, then you get theoretical valuations that are infinite and stuff on things like that. And not only that, but the incremental movement between two points, um, say positive 50 basis points and negative 50 basis points move should mean that your stock market should go up, uh, by some huge amount that way. doesn't work that way. Why doesn't it work that way? Because actually no one expects interest rates to stay at that same level forever. So there's been perpetual debt issued in the past. Governments have issued debt that never matures. Uh, it pays a yield forever and is never going to be retired. Um, when that happens, that that's the purest instrument you can think of to react to interest rates that way. The people who buy and sell it don't believe that today's interest rates are going to continue to be the same interest rates for hundreds of years. So the adjustment is only partial, right? Um, that's always my argument with it is just because interest rates today might be uh, whatever number on a 10-year or 30-year doesn't mean that over the full time that you own this stock, which is pretty close to perpetual uh, instrument, is going to mean you can reinvest at those rates. And so the problem that you have is if your discount, if the sort of um, your alternative here is you're saying, okay, I'm investing in this to get a 5% return when the best alternative for me is 3% or something and other things. But if halfway through your ownership, you know, you plan to own it for 15 years and seven years from now, um, that then becomes 6%. Well, now you would have to adjust the value of what you own. That's the when I talk about reinvestment risk. That's what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but theoretically, it's correct if it was matched off and you knew what interest rates were going to be and you knew when what you were buying would mature. So if you're buying something that's going to mature in three years and you're 100% sure the Fed won't do anything for three years, then it's correct. Mm-hmm. If you were to pay 50 times earnings for a company, what would that company have to look like? Very hypothetical, probably a challenging question, but I'm just curious because I'm seeing a lot of people pay 50 times or you know more or whatever for a lot of these businesses because the growth rates are so huge. Um, but as we talked about, I believe on the Howard Marks memo, you know, competition. That's something that a lot of people assume that, you know, yeah. these companies are going to own the market one day and, and as if competition isn't going to come in to try to compete a right. lot of their business away. Yeah. And so like we own a company that's at, I don't know, 25 times earnings, maybe mm-hmm. 30 times earnings, something like that. We've gone through the math before okay. on it, but is that like a competition play? It's over the counter markets. We've talked about it before and have disclosed that. Right. I mean, so that's a company that you paid a higher multiple for. Right. Why is that? So I thought it had a moat. 
um, think it has a moat, however you want to put that, and uh, that it would grow over time at rates equal to or faster than nominal GDP, regardless of what inflation and things like that were. It's an information services company uh, tied to financials. Um, so I just have certain beliefs about what that growth will be. Once it has a certain approach to how it's run, uh, you know, who management is and what they're focused on, it can mean that they can keep the moat that they have. Um, it tends to be an area that's fairly difficult for someone once something is established to come in and replace it. Uh, it is sensitive, though, to if I'm wrong about regulation or other things that have to do with the proprietary nature of information created in the process of what they do. So in a sense, it's kind of like, um, imagine Facebook or something. What if Facebook had to take all the data it has and share it with everyone? If they did, then Facebook is a lot less valuable. Um, same thing here. If regulators were ever to say that everyone has to have access to all the information created, all the data here, and they can't resell it to other people and stuff like that, the, of the transactions that happen on, on the, for this company. So basically, I'm saying the data that they have, uh, the trade data and things like that, is valuable. And if I'm wrong about that, uh, then we'll have a problem. But otherwise, if I'm right about it, then I think we have ideas of how fast it could grow over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But a lot of that comes from the competition or the potential competition that the right. company could so face. So you could say network effects or however you want to put it. I think that it has a big moat that way. In general, once you have a strongly established stock exchange or something like that, um, that's having success, you, someone doesn't replace it. Mm -hmm. It's rare. Um, there, You know... You can. I, I think um, DIY Investing did a podcast talking to um, Ralph Molina of um, Midstory Ventures, specifically about OTC markets, where they get into much more detail than I've ever talked about the company. But some of the examples they give is, you know, Nasdaq tried to create something to compete with it and decided to drop it. Um, there's a venture exchange in Canada, venture exchange in uh, the UK, some other ones that had some success. And then a lot less than what they've had here. Um, you know, the their biggest customers, Bloomberg, for example, is a big customer. Um, there's lots of other ones. I think we'll pay for the sort of, sort of things that they have. I think there'll always be a market for what they're doing. Um, there's regulation risk, though. You know, in a sense, their prices are set by regulators because regulators basically permit price increases by the actual exchanges and so they have to keep pricing below that so in a sense they're they're kind of it's like a utility that way someone's capping part of it um but yeah i would say and then of course it doesn't use any capital now mm -hmm. you also have to remember though you know if someone else is running the company they might treat the float that they generate as money that could be invested and if you did that they would make more money off of that i don't know how much more off the top of my head but I would say that probably, um, what are they at? They're, what's their market cap? Market cap, $449 million. So they could probably generate, um, I don't know, $1.5 million, $2 million a year more if they invest 100% of their float because their float is you know, 10% of their market cap or something like that. And so if you invested it, say, in an index fund or something over time, you would get returns. And you would never have to sell it. Um, you never pay taxes on it, basically, because your company's growing all the time. So it would work like an insurance company, but they don't do that. They the, don't treat their float that way. The point I'm trying to get across, though, is, okay, so I guess 
you could call this paying up, right? Even though uh, 20 times EV to free cash flow for a lot of people is, you know, just buying a great business or whatever. But your mind immediately went to barriers to entry competition and what that could potentially look like in the future. They raised their um, prices by, I don't remember the exact amount, but depending on what it was, maybe 15, 16%, something in that neighborhood. Generally, they don't get any pushback to that when they do it. Uh, If you look at where they lose people from, they basically lose companies because the companies either want to go somewhere else because they got bigger mm-hmm. or they don't want to be public anymore. They don't really lose a lot that way. So yeah, if you have a business where you can raise prices by four or 5% or something in a 2% inflation world uh, and people don't quit using your product, business. that's a good business. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're creating a ton of data that I think is very useful, that's a good business. There's also beliefs for me about if you keep doing that, you keep creating data, having possession of data that's useful and helps with market efficiency that we talked about. They talk about this themselves, about transparency and efficiency and all that. If you're specializing in over-the-counter stuff and you're the source for a lot of that information, I think it's useful information. Um, you know, we buy things in over-the-counter markets, so we have some understanding of it. So I would be maybe a little more, um, feel a little more comfortable buying into something like that than say buying into you know Facebook or something where I don't use any of their products and don't have as good an understanding of what they're creating uh, in terms of what the value of the information that they have on people is and matching it up. Mm-hmm. Since we're kind of talking about I guess turnover and managing volatility, I think this you know is kind of uh, part of the topic. Somebody asked, how do you think about portfolio concentration? Is it a necessity to outperform the market by a notable margin? And how many positions would be ideal? This is something that's interesting to me. I was listening to Joel Greenblatt on the Investors Podcast yesterday. They had a new podcast that came out. Okay. And he talked about his evolution going from you know being a concentrated investor to his more diversified approach. Right. And he said that he still teaches his kids and you know students the, concentra- uh, the concentrated approach. It's To him, it's not like one versus the other. Okay. He's still thinks both work um but you have two radically different approaches one that's more you know um quantitative and more diversified and one that is more concentrated and very much into it so you know do you need concentration crazy concentration to outperform and why was a strategy like his successful i don't know how the returns have been recently but at least when he wrote the book the little book that beats the market um, and then you have guys like Peter Lynch too that own hundreds of different he, stocks. True, but with he did sometimes try to concentrate as much as he could within the parameters of his fund. So like it's clear he tried to concentrate as much as humanly possible on U.S. autos uh, by buying up like everything he could in that area to the amount that his fund allowed him to do that and stuff mm-hmm. like that. His fund was too big, uh, you know, so that's why a lot of his returns come from small growth stocks and stuff. But he couldn't buy enough of them. Uh, I don't know. Look, you don't have to concentrate on specific stocks if you don't want to, uh, for better or worse. Like I mentioned before, that these funds that are up 100% in something in the last year are going to have, you know, disastrous results eventually and shut down. Why is that? They're not concentrating in a few companies. Their top position isn't more than 10% of their fund. In most cases, probably 5% or less. So what does that tell you? Well, they're concentrating taking one kind of risk. So what you can do is you can buy things that move together, that have a correlation together, um, and will all, all uh, you know, like I said, taking the same kind of risk. It, in a sense, you can say I'm not concentrating, but if you own certain kinds of stocks, you're probably in it with the same groups of people. As an example, in theory, Tesla and Bitcoin don't have anything to do with each other. In practice, probably they're 
more highly correlated because they're the same sorts of people investing in both. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a whole long thing once about beta that way. But my belief about beta is that it has to do with the risk of being within a certain group. So it has little to do with the asset class or the asset. So if, um, if like, uh, like I was talking specifically about Timberland, for instance, but if there's a period where Timberland is not owned by institutions and then all institutions go into it, the institutions bring with them the beta because the problem is that their buying and selling behavior is going to be the same. Um, so if you're investing in things that are like, if you're go hunt, you could go hundred percent into net nets and you could diversify. I mean, worldwide, there are enough net nets that you could diversify among 30 different stocks easily. Uh, but you're all in one sort of thing and it's going to return one sort of return. When I bought Japanese net nets, I just saw it as one kind of thing. It didn't really matter to me which ones I was picking. So was that, and I can't remember, I mean, how much of your portfolio was 50%. net nets? Okay. I tried to make it 50%. I couldn't quite in, get in it. In your head, you thought about it as this is my net net portfolio within the portfolio? Yeah. It was always going to be 50%. Uh, mainly because I, at levels above 50% of stuff, there started to be currency things and I would have felt that I needed to hedge the currency and things like that. Because the currency was a risk. Yeah. Um. You know, so if you, you could, right now, you could say, all right, I'm going to do a diversified portfolio, right? But if your diversified portfolio is all um, banks that would benefit from a steeper yield curve, natural gas producers, things like that, those are all really tied to the same macro idea that might happen or might not happen. And so a lot of it will succeed or fail on that basis. And then doing that, you could avoid all the sorts of things in the index, like I just mentioned, the Teslas and the Bitcoins and stuff. So you can definitely concentrate on certain things um, without concentrating in specific stocks. So I was going to say, would you pick your spots when it came to like the industry? Right. So that's another, that's another answer. And you can be very successful that way. So uh, is Tom Russo a very concentrated investor? Because basically all he invests in are brands, global brands. So, I mean, he, I guess he owns, you could say maybe MasterCard or something isn't a, a global brand, but it, where the people put in financial service stuff, but all the other stuff really is. Mostly it's consumable stuff, um, alcohol, tobacco, yeah. soft drinks, food, all that kind of stuff. So if you're in that completely, then you're going to have a different result. You could see that over a huge period of time, last hundred years. You could diverse, you could buy every coal company, and every shipbuilding company, let's say, or you could buy every tobacco company, every alcohol company. You could be very diversified, but if you bought all tobacco and alcohol, you'd beat the indexes over 100 years. If you bought all shipbuilding and coal, you'd, you'd vastly underperform the indexes. So it is what's the 100-year future going to be for each of these things. Um, it's just the selection, the selectivity of how you pick them. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if you've picked the right country that's very cheap right now, you could buy everything in the country and you'll do fine. You know, if you time a market, right, where you buy, like, uh, you know, same thing here, you could do, you know, I, I don't expect indexes to do great that are U.S.-based indexes right now. They can be very diversified, but they could get highly, um, you know, they could get bad results that are way out of line with picking a random stock because you're picking a country, you're picking a certain size company in it, and you're picking something tied to other stuff. So, like, what... Uh, nasdaq 100 or something in theory you're diversified a lot, across a lot of different things mm -hmm. um but in practice a lot of them are tied together taking the same sort of risk or whatever um in particular that they have the same sort of investors in them you know in terms of volatility and stuff mostly i think it's who the other investors are 
what what the group is that owns your stock sure who trades it so you know because like i said that's where i think beta comes from basically is that you're it's the social risk of being in a stock with a somewhat homogenous group of buyers and sellers um otherwise that shouldn't happen you know your results should be more random and so if everyone's sort of does the same thing at the same time then you're taking the same kind of risk um we invest in a very small number of stocks, but that's because I like to make selections based on the business quality, right? Um, the competitive position, things like that. But it's not necessary if you can find bargains in other ways. If we could find that all, you know, energy stocks are cheap or all banks are cheap or all um, brick and mortar retailers are cheap or whatever, you can buy baskets of them. Uh, but that's not generally what we do. Yeah, I think if you were, you know, if you weren't focusing on, you know, the fund and the managed accounts, and it was your own personal money, you would probably do more special situations, like buying a basket of stuff, or you know, buying trusts, or just doing interesting different things that may be outside of the mandate. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I mean, I have a weakness. It's a similar to like a Buffett thing you can see in some stuff he does. I have a weakness in that if they're sort of found money. Like you can do the math and this is going to work out. Walk over I, the dollar, I and pick up the hundred. I kind of bill. feel like I have to do it. So we talked about that. Like there was a preferred stock thing. We didn't buy the preferred stock. If it was my own account with nothing else, I would have borrowed money and bought the preferred stock. You know, I would have bought a preferred stock on margin effectively. Um, it was going to work out, and that's what I would have done. Just like merger arbitrage stuff mm -hmm. and things like that. And I did some things related to that a long time ago. You never make a lot of money from it, really. The, the tough thing is you have to keep finding them. Mm -hmm. So you can do it if you're a professional to do it all the time. But I mentioned that before. There was a period where certain common stocks and preferred stocks traded in an inappropriate relationship. And so all day long, you could buy uh, preferred convertible stocks and short common stocks um, for a brief period. And then it just went away. I don't know why there was this period where that happened. Just like there's a period of um, where you could buy, do these odd lot um, merger things. So there are companies that are going private and you could buy 99 shares of them. Each case, you're going to make a few thousand dollars, but you're going to, you know, you can only invest a few thousand dollars, but you're going to make money on every single deal. And that was, I guess, because of Sarbanes-Oxley type stuff. They wanted to get private. Um, so things like that happen and you have that opportunity. Uh, you know, the preferred stock thing, I've seen big opportunities in preferred stocks, um, straight preferred stocks, not convertibles, only twice. One was the 2000 financial cri uh, 2008 financial crisis, right? Mm -hmm. And the other was COVID. And my feeling on both is that inst it has to do with institutions dropping them. In fact, it may be things like banks and insurers selling them because they can move them. So you have a loan portfolio and stuff, you can't sell that, you need to get cash this week on stuff you just dump it there might be some form of irrational selling during a financial panic that affects preferred stocks because some institutions hold them for themselves and that's probably why that happens but occasionally you get weird things like that so you got like a beyond junk bond yields on something that's way safer than anything like that yeah Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us here today. Make sure you hit that subscribe button both on YouTube and the podcast side of things. Thank you so much for all the support and we will see you in the next podcast.